This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Our scripture reading tonight comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 35 through 45. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Kathleen. Again, welcome. I'm Ted Sin. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I had, um, I was thinking a couple days ago, trying to remember what my school teacher's names were. And uh, it seems as though my vision is not the only thing escaping me these days, but my memory as well. I mean, I was horrible, maybe 30% at best of name recollection. Horrible. But I remembered the name the names of my fourth and fifth grade teacher, because it was one, Miss, Miss Fecht. And she would introduce herself sort of in a Mary Poppins sort of way. My name's Miss Fecht, which means I'm half perfect. And she would, of course, do that so fourth graders could figure out how to say it. And then that summer, she married a gentleman with the last name of Looney. And so in the fifth grade, I had... I didn't have the same teacher twice because I was held back, although that's part of my story too. She moved up a grade because she was so enamored by my skills as a student. She wanted to be with me again. I don't know what happened. She moved up. And Mrs. Looney was a more apropos name than Miss Fecht, I can tell you that. But I was thinking about her this week when I was thinking about last week's passage and this week's passage. And I was thinking about these proverbs that she used to have. She would have these proverbs right about that time where a young boy is starting to maybe become a young man. And the Proverbs were stuff like this. uh, Any man can make a mess, but only a gentleman will clean up his mess and others. And stuff like any man can smell, but only a gentleman will smell like deodorant. Just trying to get a clue in there. She had more. Let me see if I can think of them. Any man can open a door, but only a gentleman will open the door for others, especially women. But the one I want to talk to you about tonight that makes me think about Jesus and how he's revealed in this text is the one that has stuck with me for the longest, and that that is that any man can pick up a piano, but only a gentleman can put it down and not have it break. And her point is very similar to what you hear about offensive linemen in the NFL who take ballet classes is that they realize that raw strength and power will only get you so far, but to be agile 
and to understand leverage and to understand that there's a time for ballet to be more important than, than weightlifting. I saw a commercial today I thought about many of you who have Ford F-150s. There's this new commercial that's trying to indicate this same truth that we're going to look at tonight in Jesus' life. And it's the F-150 commercial that talks about you're driving down the road and a really sweet trailer starts to pass you. And then you realize that it's your trailer that's passing you. And I guess the moral of the story is that some trucks have power, but then other trucks have the ability to pull large objects and keep them behind them, which I don't really understand. But I thought I would speak to the language of you F-150 owners. But last week, we didn't have enough time to really unpack this. But remember the unclean spirit that's in the synagogue? And Jesus is in there teaching with incredible wisdom and authority. And this man with his unclean spirit says, I know who you are. You have come to overthrow us. You're the Holy One of God. And Mark intentionally uses that title, and he, he, he includes it there because as we looked at last week, the day in Jesus' life in Capernaum that has just happened from verse 21 to 34 was a day of incredible authority, incredible power, unbelievable strength and might. In this title, the Holy One of God, the only other time it comes up in the Bible, it's spoken of our judge, Samson. And even if you haven't been in a lot of church services, you might know about the really strong, muscular, powerful guy in the Old Testament that could grab 30 foxes and tie their tails together, light them on fire and ruin an entire field. The, the guy that would take a jawbone from a dead animal and slay a thousand Philistines in one battle. This incredible strength and might. But if you're with me and you read through judges over the last few weeks in city Bible reading, every judge you get to leaves you longing for something more. Every one of them eventually fails in providing a kingdom for the people of God that will be a place with a righteous, just, and merciful king who establishes a kingdom of peace and prosperity and hope. Our friend Samson was not only amazingly strong, but he was a horrible womanizer. Horrible addictions to sex. And he left my heart longing for the Holy One of God that would come and not just be amazingly strong and powerful, but also what we're going to find out in our text tonight, that this Holy One of God with all strength and authority and might is also very dependent. He's very submissive. These are not words you tend to think of with strong, powerful men. Dependent. Dependent in his prayer life, submissive in his ministerial life, He's vulnerable in his emotional life. And we're going to find out he's beautiful in his sacrificial life. So I want that to sort of be the coat hangers that we hang our coats on as we walk through this passage. And this week it's much easier than some in the past. And I'm just going to go right back through the text line by line. And we'll look at Jesus' prayer life, his ministry life, his emotional life, and his sacrificial life in that order. So let me pray and we'll get started. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the chance to be together. We pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would convict us. We pray that you would convince us of your love. I pray uh, that tonight we might see you and your glory and your beauty and the diversity of who you are. I pray that we'd fall in love with you. Each and every one of us would fall 
at your feet in love and adoration and worship. And Lord Jesus, I pray by worshiping you, we will become more like you because this city is in desperate need of who you are. So in your name we pray. Amen. Picking up in verse 35, Jesus' prayer life, he's dependent. And these first two, his prayer life and ministry life, we're going to just look very quickly at the principle that I'm trying to draw out from the text. I'll give you some application questions to go think about in other venues, but there'll be few stories and not a whole lot of time given to application because I really want to get into the last two points. So verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Let's talk about Jesus' prayer life, when, how, and why. Not when in terms of time of day, although I'll tell you it's ironic that Mark's going to talk about Jesus praying three times in his book. If you read Luke, his perspective on Jesus is that Jesus is praying all the time, which is true. But Mark sets up these thematic prayers of Jesus to let us know when he's praying. And they're all at night. It's always dark outside when Jesus is praying in the gospel of Mark. But I'm not talking about time of day when I say when. I'm talking about time of life. When is Jesus praying? Do you remember the day I just told you about in Capernaum? Where every disease was healed. Every demon was exercised. Everyone that heard him teach was astounded at his authority and his wisdom and his grace-filled teaching. And this is when Jesus decides to get up very early in the morning while it's still dark and go out and pray. It's when his popularity is through the roof. It's when his productivity is skyrocketing. It's when he has all the opportunities of the world. He decides that his soul needs to get away and pray. So that's when Jesus prays, but how? And what I mean by how is place and time. Do you see this word for desolate place in verse 35? It's the same word that's come up twice so far in the book of Mark. Eremos, wilderness. Jesus doesn't find a quiet room in his house. He doesn't find a quiet street to walk down. He takes himself all the way back out into the wilderness where John preached and baptized and where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. In the time, it says that we're going to catch up in a minute that Peter and his companions are looking for him for a long time, trying to hunt him down to let him know what kind of mistake he's making by not capitalizing on the momentum in Capernaum. And so he's out there praying, if not days, at least hours. And the question is why? The question is why? Why with this fever pitch of excitement? And why, after a long, exhausting day, would he forego sleep in order to get up and go pray? And I think you could describe it in two words, orientation and direction. He goes to the wilderness for a reason. The last time he was in the wilderness, his heavenly father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Almost every time Jesus prays and it's recorded or teaches us to pray, the very first word coming out of his mouth is Abba, Daddy, Papa. That Jesus knows the temptation coming to him will be to feed on the popularity he has in Capernaum and instead he gets away to reorient himself on what will sustain him in his ministry and in his emotions and in his sacrifice. And that is the love of God the Father for him. Orientation. 
But not only that direction, we're going to pick that up here in a second when we look at what Peter, Simon Peter is going to tempt him with in terms of where he should go with his life. But listen to this real quick. These are things to just think about in your groups, in your marriages, with your roommates. We're too busy to pray. We're too successful to stop right now. We have too many opportunities in front of us to get away for a day or two. We're too important and our job is too crucial. If the son of God on the mission of changing the world knew he needed to get away for significant chunks of time to connect with the father in prayer, shouldn't we? Some things to discuss. So let's keep moving in verse 36. We'll look at Jesus' ministry life and that he's submissive. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. The word is he hunted him down. He tracked him down. All of the verbs in these two verses, searched, found, and said, they all have a connotation of anxiety and frustration. And Simon is saying to Jesus, what are you doing? You don't have a big day like yesterday and then get up early and leave town. We've got to keep this momentum going. We've got to keep this success going. What are you doing? Don't forget that Peter, later on in the book of Mark, is going to chastise Jesus for saying he has to die on the cross for us. And when Jesus says, my kingdom is one that goes forward in weakness and vulnerability and sacrifice, Peter's like, you're nuts. That's no way to build a kingdom. So Peter's presumption is that Jesus will be so excited about this news that Jesus will shape up and follow brilliant Peter back to Capernaum for some more heroism. But this is Jesus' answer. He's going to say in verses 38 and 39, I'm not going to be a popular miracle worker, but I'm going to be a Messiah. And I do submit my life to someone, but it's not you and it's not the crowds. I do everything my father tells me to do. So I've got to get away and find out what he wants me to do. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Do you see how incredibly popular it is to exercise demons? Do you see the incredible popularity of taking a woman who's very ill with a very hot fever and holding her hand and resurrecting her and her being healed right away? Do you see the popularity in that? Do you see the popularity in Capernaum that it says no one was sick when Jesus was done that day? Do you see the unpopularity in what Jesus wants to go do? He wants to go preach. He's already told us what his message is in Mark chapter one. It's repent. It's very popular to help people with physical brokenness. It's very unpopular to call people to repentance on spiritual brokenness. This is Jesus's message. You're rebels, you're insurrectionists, you're murderers, you're adulterers, you're broken, you're guilty, you're selfish. Repent, confess, hate your sins, and find life in the kingdom of God. Not very popular. The second half, the grace half, is very popular. The repent half, the own up to what you have done half, is very unpopular. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, my ministry is the ministry of word and deed, and you will not find me doing one without the other. I will always do deeds in keeping with my preaching, and I will always preach to balance out my works. We're going to find this theme throughout the book of Mark and every other gospel is that Jesus heals physical brokenness with deeds of compassion, and he heals spiritual brokenness with a call to repentance and faith. I'm going to find it over and over. And so as a church, again, quick application, as a church and as individuals, are we willing to love even when it's not popular? 
Right now, in our day and age and in our city, it's really cool and approving and righteous to do deed ministry, to do acts that address physical brokenness with our neighbors. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we calling anyone to repent over spiritual brokenness? And on the flip side of the coin, if you like arguing and debating, are you crying over anyone and their physical brokenness? And are you touching them in ways that are really expensive for you? Jesus will not preach without healing and he will not heal without preaching. And the call of this church and the call of us as individuals is to do the exact same thing. Next, picking up in verse 40, I told you we were gonna go fast through the first two. We're gonna slow down now. We're gonna look at Jesus' emotional life and that he's vulnerable. We're gonna look at his sacrificial life and that he's beautiful. Now, if you don't know what the word vulnerable means, it's just a really cool buzzword right now. Um, It's like technology has buzzwords, like uh, Oprah has buzzwords. Everybody has these buzzwords that you can be cool if you say them. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't always know what they mean, but vulnerable just by its definition at dictionary.com is this idea that I am open. The most basic idea for vulnerable is that I'm open, which means I open myself up to you and you have the choice of blessing me or cursing me. You have the choice of hugging me or assaulting me. And what we're going to learn in this passage is that Jesus is opening himself up to those who are broken and allowing them to change who he is on the inside. Verse 40, and a leper came to him. We should just stop. If you've been in the church a long time, you've heard this. And if you haven't been in the church, you should know how scandalous this is. That a leper has even approached Jesus when he is surrounded by other people. It's incredibly shocking, incredibly scandalous. Leprosy 101, just a very basic lesson on what this means. Most of our footnotes will say that it's a wide variety of very contagious diseases. But leprosy was this catch-all term that would include any sort of contagious rash or disease or any sort of skin affliction. But leprosy was not simply a disease. It It was a condition. It was a sentence. It had not just physical components to it where your skin is, your body's literally falling apart, but it also had social components to it. Because you were contagious, you were forced completely away from community. You lived in the wilderness. You lived among other lepers, but you were never allowed to touch the other lepers. That once you knew you had leprosy, if you touched another human being, you would be stoned. So there's a physical aspect where you're literally falling apart. There's a social aspect where you have no human touch. I mean, we sociologists and psychologists tell us that a baby cannot develop into a human being unless someone's touching it. And a leper's being asked to do what a baby cannot, which is live without any sort of touch. But there's a spiritual component to this condition or this sentence. And that is that the Bible, Old Testament indicates in the Hebrew culture thought that leprosy was the judgment of God and that that person should be shunned from any spiritual worship whatsoever. And so not only is your body falling apart and you're isolated from community, but you and everyone around you believes that you're being judged by God and for you there is no hope. Leviticus 13 uh, 13 and 14 in Leviticus are two chapters that are very long. It, It reads like a dermatological report. And then it um, it sort of switches as to what should happen if someone discovers that they're clean, which we only have one or two references of in the whole New Testament. This is what it says. Leviticus 13, 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes 
and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. I was thinking about this this morning. I was meditating and praying through this passage. And I was thinking about that horrible moment where you would, as a leper, begin to realize that you had leprosy. Because you don't want the priest to say, you're unclean, get out of the city right now. But at the same time, you didn't want to kiss your wife or hug your child or shake your best friend's hand because you're contagious. I was thinking about that horrible moment this morning where you began to understand that you had leprosy. The last hug was the last hug. The last kiss was the last kiss. And the last handshake was the last handshake. I was repenting this morning. Um, I mean, I've got, I got so many inside this head. If I could just let you in, there's so many neat things happening between all the people in there. But I've got, I just have real, I've got, I got real problems. And, um, one of, my, one of the most annoying times in my day is when my kids find out I'm leaving and they start yelling, close your door, close your door, close your door. It drives me absolutely crazy because I've got to stop, wait for them. They all have got to get organized. I can't just sneak out and jump in the car and leave and get on with my calendar and on with my control and, and on with my agenda. And they're, always, they're, probably, they're probably eating breakfast and they're touching my clothes and their hands are dirty And then I get the door closed and they go up onto the porch and that's not enough. They've got to all come back down again and get back in the car and give hugs and kisses and go back out. And I I just repented this morning. Shame on me for not loving that. Shame on me for not reveling in that, that while they want to and while they can, they're touching me. This morning I, I was repenting and Braden's always the first one to come downstairs uh, he and I have breakfast every morning very early. And for some reason, he slept in long beyond when he normally does. And Maddie, my oldest, was the first one down. So I sat down and I watched Tom and Jerry for about 30 minutes with her and had a great time. This is the most redemptive thing I could have ever done. It was the best thing I could have done. I couldn't have done anything better. No work on this sermon. No prayer for you people. No trying to figure out what's going on in the economy sitting down watching Tom and Jerry. And I asked her to forgive me, and she did. But not only was this leper supposed to go outside the city and be in the wilderness, but the people inside the city also had rules and regulations about them. That if a leper is under a tree saying, unclean, 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 and you can tell by their attire that you're not supposed to go near them, if you share shade, if you walk under that tree with a leper, according to the Old Testament, you are unclean and you are outside the camp. I want us to see how scandalous it is that this leper made a mad dash for life because he realized that in Jesus, it was his only hope. I want us to see how scandalous it is. I was uh, listening to a mentor of mine this week, one of my bosses in this presbytery, and he was talking. He reminded me of this great illustration, this fantastic illustration that Martin Luther used to give. And he said, we've got to begin to understand our condition apart from Christ is this, is that we are caterpillars stuck in a ring of fire. The 
leper began to realize he is a caterpillar stuck in a ring of fire with no possible way of getting out if someone does not come in from above and rescue him. And so he goes to Jesus and let's pick up what he says, begging him, imploring him and kneeling. Do you understand why there's so much passion and urgency and emergency behind what he's doing? Imploring him and kneeling, he said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Do you understand his presupposition? Ability, power, strength, authority, might, check. But love, mercy, and desire, I don't know. Do you see that? If you will, which is a word for want, if you want to, you have the ability to make me clean. And these are Jesus' options. He can turn and damn him and tell the crowds to stone him. He can ignore him the way I tend to ignore uncomfortable people in my path. He can lecture him on why he's about to be stoned. We know from other scripture that he could heal him by just thinking about it. We know from other scripture he could just heal him by speaking it into existence. Verse 41, moved with pity, compassion, love. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And he said to him, I desire, I want, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Do you see that what Jesus has done is more scandalous than what the leper has done? He outdoes him in his scandalous behavior. It's absolutely beautiful that Jesus is so full of the love of the Father for him. He is able to be available to this man and be emotional towards him. And he's able to let this man actually influence what he is going through. Instead of being on the emotional high of popularity, he is now feeling the pain of a leper. And not only does his heart go out to him, his hand goes out to him as well. And he says, I want to cleanse you. And here you go. The core of who I am, I desire for you to be clean. Listen to this fantastic quote that I read in one of the commentaries this week. The commentator said that both souls needed to touch. The commentator was talking about this incredible need of not just speaking the healing or hoping the healing or praying the healing, but touching the healing. He said both souls, speaking of Jesus and the leper, needed touch. The ease with which Jesus crossed social and religious boundaries is breathtaking. One has to put together the panic and fear inculcated by the early news of AIDS and add to it a strong religious revulsion to begin to understand what touching a person with leprosy meant to orthodox bystanders in Jesus' day. I love this line right here. Yet this was fundamental, not to his strategy, but to his being. That at the core of who Jesus was as a human, he had to touch him. 
That's what it is to be human. I think that's beautiful. Do you see in our text so far, I, I won't go back and show, but the word clean comes up over and over and over. The word healing is not to be found because this man has a condition and not a disease. And Jesus has cleansed him. And so the commentators and I will join them and try and figure out, all right now, is Jesus, does he now have leprosy? Has this man's disease jumped onto him? And it's not really the point of the story yet. But I will tell you this, that there's a difference between morality and works-based righteousness and salvation and relationship with God and the gospel grace of Jesus, which is I give you relationship with the Father by sheer undeserved mercy and grace. That in religion, when the clean comes in contact with the unclean, the clean is contaminated. But in the gospel, when the clean comes in contact with the unclean, the unclean is made new. That's the good news of the gospel for us tonight. So now let's move on to our last point. Jesus' sacrificial life and that he's beautiful. I can't think of any other word. I thought of dependent. I thought of submissive. I thought of vulnerable. And I, and I couldn't think of anything other than beautiful for what Jesus does in 43, 44, and 45. Listen with me again. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. If if you're new to the word sacrifice, if that doesn't make sense to you, the core of the word sacrifice is the idea of an exchange. That one lives for another, that one is punished for another, that one dies for another. There's an exchange that is at the core of sacrifice and at the core of the gospel that we celebrate and worship tonight. But if you're new to the Bible, listen to this. This is what is happening in this story. This is what is happening in the gospel. This is the offer to every one of us tonight in the name of Jesus is that the sinner is in community and the beautiful one is in the wilderness. Do you see how this story starts? The sinner is in the wilderness and the beautiful one is in community. But at the end, the sinner is in community and the beautiful one is in desolate places. Do you see that exchange? You're like, why did you change from leper to sinner? Do you see this in verse 44, 45? Jesus sternly charged him, verse 43, and he sent him away at once. And he said, don't talk to anybody about this. I want you to go straight to the priest and offer the sacrifice for your cleansing that Moses commanded. But just like you and I in our human nature, the disobedient, rebellious, and proud. Do you see this again? Peter's like, Jesus, if you just knew how to work a kingdom, we could get something done here. And the leper's like, why would I be quiet about this? Why don't I go tell everyone about this so you become even more famous? And Jesus is telling the leper and Peter and you and I, I didn't heal you to become famous. I healed you because I love you. And if I become famous from healing you, then I'm going to get something in the transaction. And really all I want to do is take care of you. There's no double motive here. You're just a human created in the image of God and I desire to make you clean. 
There's more going on with why Jesus says to be quiet, but we'll come to that later in our study on Mark. So the sinner is in community and the beautiful one is in the wilderness. And you're like, in community, what? That can't possibly be true. This is so wrong. This is so vile. This, this can't happen. It's so contrary to the way I think and behave and process. It's contrary to everything in my culture and what it teaches me about how you get to be with God in heaven. I was watching Tom and Jerry this morning. One of my favorite episodes came on. The Heavenly Express. Have you seen this one? Of course, Tom's chasing Jerry. Jerry's scooting up some stairs. Tom pulls the rug, the carpet that's going up the stairs. He pulls on it really hard. And of course, he pulls and pulls and pulls. And Jerry gets out of the way right as a piano is coming flying down the stairwell. And it smashes Tom right up against the wall. And Tom lays on the ground. And this half Tom, this spirit-looking Tom, begins to raise up out of the body and get on a golden escalator that's heading up towards the clouds. And he gets at the very top of this really long escalator. And it says, the Heavenly Express. And there's a big train there. It reminds me of the Polar Express. I love that this time of year. If you haven't seen that movie, see that. The Heavenly Express. And there's a, uh, there's a cat that we're supposed to think is St. Peter. And this cat is, has a long line of cats who are going away. And Tom's at the end of it. And you hear cat after cat get through the pearly gates because when they died, they were doing something good. You died trying to get your kittens across the road. Get on the Heavenly Express. You died of starvation because you would not eat any rats or mice or what is Jerry, a mouse? Get get on the Heavenly Express. You died doing something good. Tom gets there and Tom tries to sneak by, hoping Peter doesn't see him. Love it. Maddie and I talked about this for about 10 minutes afterwards. Tries to sneak by and Peter pulls him back over and he says, get over here. He says, it says right here that you died doing what you did your entire life, tormenting and trying to eat Jerry. I will give you one hour to get back down there and get Jerry to sign this letter of forgiveness for you so that you can take the heavenly express to heaven. And then, I'm not joking, it's so politically incorrect. And he said, but if you don't get his signature and it flashes to the big burly dog as Satan in hell, and there's flames everywhere. And he's like, whoa, what is that? And the connotation is if you don't get the signature in an hour, you're done. You're gonna spend time in torment forever. I won't kill you with the rest of the story because I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> Because I know you guys are going to go out and look it up on YouTube, the Heavenly Express, look it up. But that's what our culture is telling us. If you die doing something good, you go to heaven. If you die doing something bad, you go to hell. Or a more sophisticated option is if during your life, if you do more good than more bad, then you're going to heaven on the Heavenly Express. But more bad than more good, and you're in trouble. This is what we're learning in this passage and in this book and the entirety of this Bible is that the gospel is a completely different way. That every one of us show up to Peter and he tells us all the bad we did. And then he says, but you can get on the heavenly express because Jesus died for all of that on the cross. Because Jesus lived this beautiful, vulnerable, dependent, submissive, gorgeous, sacrificial life. And then he died for sinners who repent. Why is Jesus so stern? Sternly charged him, sent him away at once. What does he tell him to do? Instead of 
spreading the word, he tells them, go to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. If you turn to Leviticus 14, you can read this. That on his way to the temple, on his way to the temple, the leper is heading towards Jerusalem and his job is to find two wild birds, to take two wild birds, live wild birds with him to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, what the priest is going to do is he's going to take one of the birds and he's going to pop his neck off and he's going to let all the blood come out of that one live now dead bird into a basin. And he's going to add water to it and mix it up. And he is going to take the other bird and completely dunk it into the basin and cause it to be covered with blood. And then he takes it back out to the wilderness and he sets it free to fly away. And Jesus is saying, to the leper and to you and me, I want you to go look at this picture of these two birds and I want you to realize this is exactly what I'm doing for you right now, staying in desolate places so you can go into community. Is that covered in my blood, you're free to go. I know this is completely contrary to anything we could possibly imagine being true, and it works so against the way we think and the way we treat one another. But not only do we get to go free, but you want to know how God the Father sees us? You want to know what he thinks of you? Do you want to know how much he loves you? He sees you as dependent. He sees you as submissive. He actually sees you as sacrificial. He sees us as vulnerable. Jesus' prayer life is now my prayer life in the gospel. Not only his record, so I'm that beautiful, but he begins to cause me to pray like him. And his ministry life is mine. I mean, when God sees me, he sees me as someone who feels compassion every time and moves in and does the right thing that this is the great news of the exchange of the sacrifice of the gospel. That everything that Jesus has is mine. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. And uh, you are, in fact, very beautiful. You are beyond our wildest imaginations. And Jesus, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that Tom and Jerry is wrong because I'd be in so much trouble if my relationship with the Heavenly Father was based on my deeds. I praise you, I worship you, I exalt you, I extol you because my place in the city of God has been purchased by your blood shed outside the city gates. In your name we pray, amen. Jesus, Father's glory.